So hello and welcome to another episode of Interviews with Experts. You may have heard about the first vaccine for honeybees approved by the United States Department of Agriculture. This could pave the way for controlling a range of viruses. Dallin Animal Health is based in Athens, Georgia, and Dallin's honeybee vaccine was named to Times 2023 Best Inventions List in recognition of the world's first honeybee vaccine and recognized as an extraordinary innovation. Today, I interview three members of the Dallin Animal Health team so we can learn more about how a bee vaccine can protect your honeybees. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. All right, so hello to everyone. I want to thank you for being here today. And uh, you're connecting with me from different parts of the country. So I find that to be very interesting. And I want to thank you for your time. And if we could, please just go around. I'd like you to introduce yourself, where you're located, and what your current job is with Nalan. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we'll start with you, Annette. Please introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Well, first of all, thank you for having us. It's really great uh, to be on your show. My name is Annette Kneisen, and I am the CEO of Dalan Animal Health. And I am located in Athens, Georgia, where the headquarter of the company is. Oh, great. Thank you and welcome. Nate? Hi, I'm Nate. I'm located in uh, Central Maryland here, run a small apiary, and I'm in beekeeper relations and uh, do a bit of uh, field research and uh, field data collecting for us. So um, wear a few different hats, but primarily working with beekeepers and trying to figure out exactly how this fits into their operation. Okay, fantastic. Amy? Hi, uh, I'm Amy Floyd, and I um, am located in northern Arizona in Flagstaff. And um, I am our, our regional manager and head of beekeeper relations. And I do a lot of uh, our outreach, working, um, going to conferences um, and visiting beekeepers and teaching them how to incorporate the vaccine into their operation and um, just building those relationships. Okay, great. So thank you and welcome again. By the way, Flagstaff, Arizona, I used to live there. Yeah. My mother, my mother taught there. And I lived on San Francisco Street. So I was a oh. free range child right at the edge of the forest there. Yeah. So, okay. And that's what we're here to talk about. I'm sure I have a list of questions. Now, here's the thing. Beekeepers hear vaccine. And a lot of them just go, whoa, no, not my bees. I don't want that happening at all. I don't care what it's for. Vaccines are bad. So what we hope to do today is talk about that a little bit and understand what a vaccine is, how it's going to benefit our bees and why we even need it to begin with. So I'm actually gonna start with Annette. Why do we need a vaccine for American foul brood specifically? Well, vaccines have proven to be extremely effective in the prevention of diseases across different animals, humans, livestock, our you know pets. And over the years, we have seen how vaccination or prevention of disease particularly can just increase productivity, can increase production in um, production animals, in livestock, whether they are chickens or cows. And 
there are different ways to prevent diseases, but vaccines are one very powerful tool that uh, every every person should have access to, we feel, if they so choose to prevent diseases. And in honeybees, just like any other animal, we find diseases and we find a whole bunch of diseases, whether they're bacterial infections like American fowl root or European fowl root, another very damaging bacterial infection, or whether they're viral infections like deformed wing virus, or fungal infections like chalk brood, they are out there and they are impacting our hives and they're limiting um, the production capability of hives and, and the hive health goes down. And, and I'm, you know, every beekeeper can tell a story about that. And despite the fact that beekeeping has been around for thousands of years and we've we're relying on bees in in large numbers to help us with food production honey production crop production feed production it's used in medicine it's the the products are just they touch in clothes and, and they touch every part of our lives we're not providing the same tools to prevent diseases to beekeepers and we wanted to change that and that's when we decided we have vaccines for other animals. Why don't we do the same for honeybees? Why don't we provide this, this non-chemical tool to, to help beekeepers protect um, their, their animals, their livestock, their livelihood? Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Um, the American fowl brood, by the way, is something that a lot of people listening and watching right now won't even be familiar with. So as you mentioned, we've been keeping and managing honeybees for thousands of years. When did Falbridge show up and why would it be important at all to address it? And I, Nate, I, you wanna take that one? I, I'd be happy to take that one. Um, as I understand it, American Falbridge showed up in the early um, 20th century. So 19, 19 aughts, something a little, um, maybe a little bit past that. And it's only called American fowl brew because it was studied here, but we know this disease to be worldwide, similar to European fowl brew. It's not just isolated to Europe, but that's where it was studied. So that's a little bit about where the name came from. Um, and one of the reasons beekeepers might not be aware of it, despite it being prevalent in, if you look at the hives um, tested in Canada, in the US, they found uh, the spores of Penobicillus larvae, the, the bacteria that actually causes American fowl brood. In the hives that were looked at in these published studies, um, it was over 50% of them found these spores present. So one of the things we started to dig in and look into is the uh, the subclinical versus the clinical case. So, um, you know, these spores are present and when a hive is weakened, uh, the stressors from, you know, we all know honeybees are stressed for a number of different reasons, pesticides, uh, migratory patterns, uh, things of that nature. We start to see more clinical cases of this AFB pop up um, of American fowl brood. But the, the spores that cause it, we're seeing it in a large number of, of uh, hives across North America, but you can't see it with the naked eye. You have to test for it. And um yeah, so that's that might be someone's, you know, why someone hasn't seen AFB directly in their hive. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned that, by the way, uh, when it gets to clinical levels, levels requiring treatment, 
So mm-hmm. it is prevalent in the hives and of course subsists, we know, for decades in your in your comb and uh, other parts of the hive, which is why it's tough to get rid of. And a lot of people may have seen it, but as you said, you don't see it with the naked eye unless it's extreme. And then you get into rope testing and things like that. And then we have field test kits for that, right? Um, so there is a difference in vaccinating and then in treatment because there are treatment options for low levels. Uh, which of you would like to talk about um, treatment levels versus vaccination and why one would be preferred over the other? I could touch on that. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of most of the options for beekeepers right now are treatments rather than preventative options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of the, the, sh- the mind set shifts that, that happens with the vaccine is you're using this as a preventative option. Um, and for AFB preventative is better anyway, because if you're getting to those clinical levels, those management options are, are very limited. Um, it's either burning that hive, that gear, um, which no one enjoys doing that. Um, and, um, or trying to use antibiotics, which have bigger consequences. They're affecting the gut microbiome of bees. Um, if you're a honey producer, you now have a withdrawal period you have to deal with. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just an, an antibiotic resistance that we're perpetuating. So those options aren't, aren't ideal, um, anyway, but AFB also targets larvae in their first 48 hours um, after they hatch, which is a really, right, there are constantly, like dur- during the, the appropriate season, there are constantly first instar larvae in your hive. And to be constantly treating to try to protect them from something, it's nearly impossible. And so a vaccine that is um, priming their immune system, so when they hatch, they are ready to fight it. Um, and it takes that work away from the beekeeper, these larvae are just hatching and they're ready to, to take care of themselves, um, is a, is a cool shift from a treatment to a, to the vaccines, um, kind of purpose and, and more of a preventative mindset, which is kind of the approach we take with all of our other, with our pets and ourselves. And, um, so hopefully that can, that mindset shift sets in for this industry too. Yeah. And I think antibiotic use is just really in in aquaculture um, becoming more and more of a problem. Because like Amy said, it's not only does it end up in the food chain and affects us down the road or your animals down the road when they eat the feed that was exposed to antibiotics, but the issues with antibiotic resistance is, and beekeepers are seeing it. And then for the last 40 years, antibiotic use was very, because it was the only option against this, these diseases and also reason why many beekeepers haven't seen American fowl root in, 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 uh, in 40 years or not a lot because it's suppressed. It's in there, but with the antibiotics, it's, it's suppressed. And, mm-hmm. and at some point the bacteria don't respond to these antibiotics anymore. And, and we're seeing this happen. And the, the, the big, the you know like like when Nate said in the beginning of the, the 20th century, huge outbreaks and huge devastation to the industry. Um, the 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 American the apiary inspector agency was founded 
because of American Firebird, because it was such a big problem and impacted the industry. So the risk is still there, and 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 we need we just need really um, yes with hygiene and and good you know management practices all of that is is true. I mean we know quarantining of of diseased hives or quarantining at risk hives is very effective to limit the spread, but it's also very costly. That the almonds don't wait, the blueberries don't wait. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, until you are out of quarantine uh, with your hives. And and so having these tools available, um, we we hope is is really pushing, giving this industry um, a boost. Mm-hmm. And uh, Amy did hit on something that uh, is meaningful to a lot of backyard beekeepers, which most of my audience consists of, by the way. Uh, the types of hives that are coming out now, a lot of them are polymers, uh, they're polystyrene. Uh, and we talk about when they hit a certain level, American Falbury gets discovered and, you know, we have to burn the hive. That is not a very good way to manage uh, something that when it burns is going to create a bunch of toxins as well. So a vaccine would, of course, avoid that. The other thing that listeners should understand is that if they do go the route for treatment, um, and the problem is these antibiotics have to continue to be treated. In other words, there's never a point at which you've arrived, right. you defeated it, and now this equipment is good to go. You start that treatment, it continues. And that, of course, is the way our state uh, Department of Agriculture dictates that it has to be managed. So I see the vaccination route uh, being a huge advantage for some of these more elaborate hive configurations with materials that can't be disposed of if they did have a heavy dose of uh, foul brood. Yeah, Uh, this year in Oregon, um, I found out that um, they can't burn anything there that's been painted. So any any of their woodenware, even that has been painted that they would need to burn to get rid of, um, that's not allowed in that state. So that's a a good point. So what do they do? (laughs) I think they just kind of blow torch and try try to burn the insides of it, but. Burn the inside of your plastic beehive? Well, in a wooden wear case. Okay. <laughs> but that's interesting too that the paints are because they are a, a plastic, for example, if we're dealing with acrylics, which are very popular now. Yeah. Um, so let's get on to how new are vaccines for bees? This is the first time a vaccine that's been developed for any insect. Is that correct? That's correct. And specifically the honeybee because of its profound impact on our economy worldwide when it comes to agriculture. So when did this even become a possibility? Not that long ago. It's probably 10 years ago, something like this. Researchers across the world, or it was was believed that insects don't have an immune system. And for a vaccine to be effective, you need to stimulate an adaptive immune system, which generates antibodies that is very specific against the disease. And not only is there no immune system, there's certainly nothing as fancy as an adaptive immune system with antibodies. Now, insects usually don't live 30 years, so they don't necessarily need a memory that long. But researchers didn't didn't think that this was even an option for for insects or, or honeybees. And it wasn't until maybe 15 years ago 
that researchers saw, they realized that when you expose the queen to a pathogen, that she can't get, like Amy said, these are these are larval diseases, these are brood diseases. The queen is not going to get sick from it to the extent we know, mm-hmm. or the worker bees are not going to get sick, but they see the disease. But if the queen sees the disease, the next generation is less likely to get sick. And so people are saying, well, wait a minute, that only works if you have an immune system. There must be something in these animals that allows them to be protected from a disease. And they started looking into this, what could this be? And and found um, this, this mechanism that exists where the queen transports or gives passes on the information to the next, to the larva and the next generation. And based on that discovery, researchers in Finland and my, my co-founder, Daya Freitag, set out to say, well, let's see if we can really find out what's going on here. And that research, um, that's when the the idea was born, that was probably 2015, 2016. Um, there should be an, an opportunity to, to develop this in a vaccine. But then it took, of course, you know, a team of people that found that technology and this idea that was tucked away at a university and said, wait a minute, we we let's try this. We know, even though people said that this, you know, might might very likely to fail, you know, to, to develop a new product it takes a long time. But yeah, that's when we came together and started the company and said, let's let's work with the, the regulator, let's work with the government to see if we can make a difference here. But it's very new, it's really very new, and it's a first of its kind. And so being new, when was it first authorized to be used on bees here in the United States? Or I believe it's the U.S. and Canada? Mm-hmm. There okay. was December 29, 2022. But we didn't learn about it until January 3rd when everybody came back from, from the holidays. We received an email that it was um, that we received the license and the market authorization uh, to go forward, and and then we worked with the Canadian um, equivalent to the USDA uh, that reviews animal vaccines and is responsible. So they they the the, the office in in um, the US as well as in Canada, they all animal vaccines, whether it's it's a dog or a cat or a chicken, will go through this this agency for review and they look at efficacy, at purity, at at identity. So everything that they would do for a regular livestock vaccine, all of that review, we had to show all the data and all the, the proof and 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 um paperwork to pages and pages and pages, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for Canada, I think it was September 28th or 26th of uh, 2023. So yeah, in the U.S. it has been available since our spring, and um, in Canada we got the approval in the fall. So do we have any idea the number of vaccinated queens that are out there in the United States right now? <laughs> Nate is. Uh... Uh, yeah, it's probably somewhere around nine nine thousand. Um, yeah. Nine thousand vaccinated queens in hives right now. And where um, are those? Are are you doing work with University of Georgia? 
or we, Dr. Delaplane, did he have some part in finding Tess yards? We, we did, so we had, uh, for two years, we've been working, past two years, we've been working with um, Keith Delaplane and his his team here at the University of Georgia. Uh, we didn't have, in the beginning, we didn't have our own hives or our own um, bee yards to do the research. So we, we worked uh, with a lot of universities and a lot of researchers also, USDA, that's where we met Amy. <laughs> she was she was a researcher on on the project um, for two years before joining us. And um yeah, so we are we're working with different universities and the 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 university here and uh, Key Stella Plains lab is just amazing, just incredible. Uh, from the research power that they have and uh, just Great experience. Yeah. So then, Amy, are you wearing multiple hats, or did you leave one organization to join this one? How's it going? <laughs> um, yeah. So I worked for the USDA um, for about six years um, at the the Tucson, the Carl Hayden Bee Research Lab, and then I I worked at the the lab that's in Davis, um, California, um, as well. And while I was working there, um, we collaborated. Um, the labs I was working with collaborated with Dallin to to get some trials done in some different contexts. And uh, in Tucson, the weather is uh, a little bit more bee friendly for longer of the year. So we ran some some trials when they couldn't. Um, and then I, I decided to join Dallin full time um, when the product was being launched um, in 2022. So um, I don't work for the USDA anymore, but um, it was it, it definitely led me here. <laughs> Okay. Yes. And so I help with a lot of our trials now too. So it's it's okay. been helpful to work for the with the vaccine for, for this long. Now there are options when it comes to vaccinating queens. Um based on your website, it says that you can buy the vaccine itself and produce your own queen candy or buy queens that are actually vaccinated. And on this website, it also lists those breeders that are selling vaccinated queens. Is one method or avenue to getting vaccination in your apiary better than the other? Why would you choose one over the other? So uh, my favorite beekeeping answer, it all depends. Mm -hmm. um, as it goes, we've partnered with a number of great producers and Amy has been out there personally to sort of show them the process. So they are top notch. Um, but it, it really depends on how many queens you want to vaccinate since the, the, the minimum manufacturing amount is 50 doses per vial. So uh, unless you're uh, doing 50 queens at a time, it probably makes sense to go with um, a producer that's already producing them for you. To that end, we also have some really uh, clever genetics that are available from Russian queens to Italian, pole lines, things of that nature. So you might be searching out based on genetics um, as well as the uh, being vaccinated. But, uh, you know, I have a number of beekeepers who are talking with their clubs and they say, hey, we want to try this here locally. We want to stay on top of it. So even if you aren't just doing but maybe 10 or 25 queens, um, you can go out and find somebody in your club who's also doing the same thing. I think we're seeing more and more beekeepers take on this process of rearing their own queens because they want to be on top of it. And so they do have access to this um, at a level where they can do the vaccination themselves. 
And it's some one of the things we offer as a company is that training and and doing a one-on-one session, whether it's virtual or or you need in-person help to kind of figure out how to make it work for your operation. Um, so um, even on those small scale um, settings like clubs, sharing sharing fifty doses and vaccinating fifty queens all together, and then sharing. Um, there, there is a way, and we don't want anyone to feel deterred from the process. Um, right. It's very much a like contact us, and we will figure it out, and we'll get you pointed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And and that's not a line; it's literally us. It's it's <laughs> me and Amy. Like you, you contact. Yeah, yeah you're talking to them. <laughs> yeah, you're talking to the people right now. We will, okay. you know, we'll get on the phone with you, get on a Zoom, whatever it is. So, have you known any ver- notice any variation in efficacy depending on the line of queens that you use, or are they all kind of performing the same? Uh, I think in the in the clinical trials, uh, Annette, you can speak to this if if you'd rather. But in the in the clinical trials and efficacy trials, multiple lines were used, and and no differences based on line were seen. So, okay. So let's describe the process for the layperson. We're not getting out needles and injecting our queens. So how does the queen end up being vaccinated? Who would like to describe that process? I think that's my my realm. Um, so the the vac as if if you know bees, you know that queens don't really um, take care of themselves or eat on their own. Um, so. The vaccine is actually mixed into queen candy, um, that fondant-like sugar that's used as queen uh, sugar plugs in queen cages. Just that um, it's also used in the shipping boxes that are sent when queens are shipped to feed attendants. So that same candy is mixed with a vaccine, and then uh, workers are exposed to the vaccine and they consume um, that. It works its way through their system and into their hypopharyngeal glands, which we have really cool, um, like confirmation photos of that. Um, we like fluorescently marked the bacteria, um, and added it into that sugar candy and then dissected out the different parts of the bee. So you can see the bacteria actually working, um, the, the vaccine working its way through the, the bee system, which I, from a science point of view, I just think is very cool. It's very confirming. Um, like Nate mentioned earlier, you can't see bacteria. And so to be able to see it fluorescently marked is is really cool. Um, but so it gets into the uh, worker's hypopharyngeal glands and that's how they feed it to the queen. So it is orally fed to the queen via workers. And then it goes through the queen system into uh, her ovaries. Um, it's actually attached to a protein called vitelligenin. That's a, um, uh, a an egg yolk protein, and it's in all animals, um, but honeybee queens actually have a really high abundance of that protein. And so it's pretty easy for the vaccine particles to be able to latch onto that protein and make it all the way into her ovaries and into her egg yolk. Um, and then as the larva is developing in that egg, they are exposed and their immune systems are primed um, to fight off that um, pathogen when they when they hatch. Okay, so now I have my vaccinated queen in my hive, and she flies away. <laughs> and uh, but she did lay eggs, and of course they take those eggs and start to produce an emergency queen. Will that queen also carry that protection? She would be protected as she was developing. 
and um, as an individual, she would be protected, but her offspring would no longer um, have that protection. As far as we know, um, the, it's an exposure method. We're not genetically modifying anything. Um, right. And so it ends with her. The, the, that queen does need to be exposed in order to pass it on to her offspring. Okay. So then I'm going to throw another monkey wrench in there. The, <laughs> so she lays drone eggs um, from the vaccinated queen. Do those drones carry any benefit when they mate with queens at drone congregation areas? Uh, we haven't really looked into drones as they are involved in this process. Um, but again, they would be protected as they were developing, but they were not genetically modifying. It's not being stored in their system in any any way that they would okay. reproductively be able to pass it on in their genes. Um, so every new queen has to be vaccinated um, individually. So the word is do not let your queen fly away. Yeah, do a lot of swarm prevention. <laughs> so is there, how about shelf life of the queen? Is this good for the rest of her life? Annette, do you want to do that one? Or? We we don't know yet how long it lasts. It's it's you know it's a dead bacteria. It's it's completely inactivated, and like Amy said, we she the, the queen takes it up and stores it, stores the the, the the pieces of the of the bacteria, and then they are transported into the ovaries. Once that is depleted, once no more of it can go to the ovaries and the, the eggs are laid, then the then it's done. You would have to revaccinate. Now, how long that process takes, if it's a year, if it's nine months, if it's different between different queens, we don't know yet. We're looking into that uh, to see, to retest after a year, to retest after two years also, to develop um, diagnostic tests so we can go out into the field and say, yep, this is still... Your your hive is still good um, after a year, but that's we we're we're really at the beginning of opening up this new space of insect health, where there's a lot of room and a lot of questions <laughs> to mm -hmm. be answered, mm -hmm. and and advances to be made. So the other question is um, the vaccine itself for those that buy the fifty dose minimum. What kind of care do they have to exercise to keep that good to go? Does it have to be refrigerated? Is it very limited? Is once the vaccine's made, is it only good for 30 days or something? What are the limitations of the vaccine itself? So the, these limitations, they're, um, they're regulatory limitations. So the regulator says, unless you have shown shelf life and have tested over several years what the efficacy of, of this or the potency is of this vial will give you 18 months shelf life. So it's 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 an arbitrary but you know set um, number by the government. And so for us it's 18 months. And also unless you have tested it um with with certain you know, prescribed tests that we need to develop, the regulator will say it has to be refrigerated. So, that, so, so these are standards that that are not that 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 not, don't necessarily have anything to do with the with the product itself, but with mm -hmm. the the regulatory framework um, that we fall into. So, right now, it's refrigerated and it's um, 
the shelf life is 18 months. Okay. So when someone orders the, they contact Nate and they say, Hey, I need, I need that vaccine. What's the turnaround like? Uh, is it there ready to go or are we timing it for spring? I know a lot of Southern states, they're in queen production now. So what time of year, what kind of turnaround would they expect? So we want to make sure we follow the correct regulatory processes. And so if you contact us and want to get something sent to your state, we sort of handle the paperwork um, on the back end and get it shipped from the manufacturer. But uh, we cautiously say one to three week lead time. It's better to know sooner rather than later. Um, but it's, it's, it's a pretty straightforward process. Okay. So I already answered my drones. Oh, are after you vaccinate them, are they still considered organic? Mm -hmm. Does we it have an impact on those who have ratings that they're concerned about? Well, it's there. It, from all our understanding of the regulations, they are indicated for organic aquaculture because um, there are no additives, there are no preservatives. There are no chemicals that we put into the vaccine to alter it in any way. So it's a it's a natural product at the end of the day. It's an inactivated bacteria. So yes, it can be used in organic agriculture. So my next question is, um, the vaccine is still undergoing final approval, like it's a conditional approval right now. Is that right? That is so correct. Can we explain what that means and at what point would you expect to get final approval? Right. So a conditional approval is a accelerated um, mechanism that the regulator use in, in for high unmet needs or limited markets and if there's no other product out there. Because some of the tests that you have, some of the analytical tests that you have to do for stability um, can take very, very long, as I just described. You know, it takes, you have to develop the tests, the specific tests. It can take years to get there. And particularly if you have a completely novel product, you can't just go to a catalog and order things. You have to really start from scratch. And so the regulator... Um, says, okay, we, we believe, we trust the data that you've shown that it's, first of all, it's safe. Safety is the highest level. And then you have to, but you have to show also efficacy. And the, so the, the tests that you have to do for efficacy and for safety, identity, sterility, that there's nothing else in there, that there's nothing dangerous in the vaccine, is the same that you have to do for full licensure. There is no difference whatsoever. The only difference is the what is called a potency test, where you show with a specific test method that every batch in your manufacturing is identical, that, there's, that there are no variations. And we do that too, but with a, a different test method. And for full approval, the regulator requires a specific test method. So basically everything is the same from um, efficacy testing, from safety testing, except that one manufacturing um, uh, requirement that as such has nothing to do with the 
the the performance of the of the um, the product or shouldn't it? Okay. So do we know um, nationally how many cases of uh, foul brood require destruction of hive equipment just in the past year, two years? This is a very difficult statistic to get a hold of. So what, and, do, what do we know? <laughs> and statistics in beekeeping in general are tough to get uh, a hold of because uh, states operate independently. Uh, sometimes they communicate. And to a certain extent, there's a bit of... Um, beekeeper guilt or, or shame sort of wrapped up in reporting that, you know, you might have discovered American foul brood. And it's it's not necessarily on the beekeeper. There really shouldn't be any stigma attached to it because as we understand it, you know, these spores are present and they take decades to to kill off. And you your hive could have robbed out somebody else's unattended equipment. Um, I think I've compiled a, a, a you know, where I attended meetings and, and the state beekeeper, the state apiarist put some numbers on a slide. I, I sort of collated a few of those, but um, I think it's tough, tough to know. Amy, what's been your experience with, with that? Uh, very similar. Um, it's hard to kind of get people to beekeepers to admit if they've seen it. Um, and honestly, I think there's also a, an education gap in being able to identify American foul brood versus European foul brood or, you know, parasitic mite syndrome sometimes can look very similar to these bacterial pathogens. Um, um, and so I think, I think it goes underreported um, and there's probably more of it than we think, but I also think there's more spores in the environment than we think as well. Um, like Nate was talking about earlier, those subclinical levels of, of AFB hanging out, waiting for your hive to be stressed by something else and um, being able to work their way back into the, the, the feeding cycle and get fed back to a larva. And, you know, it, it only takes less than a hundred spores to make a larva sick. And then that turns into 2 billion spores and then you have an outbreak. Um, so um, yeah, I think numbers wise, it's it is kind of a, a guessing game, um, but I do think the risk is still prevalent. Because mm -hmm. we do have, as you mentioned, beekeepers are worried about it largely because they don't understand what it is and what that impact could be, and it's because we haven't had profound cases of it for a while, at least in my state. So I think in some ways they're becoming relaxed when they should not be. Right. Um, I think, yeah. How accurate do you feel the field tests are for AFB and EFB? Ooh, I think there can be some user error <laughs> with those. Uh, I know the EFB one, um, I did my master's degree on studying European fall brood. And I think like those, you're not even, you're not supposed to use your most sick looking larva. You're supposed to use larva that have just started to turn yellow and are starting to look ill because that's when it's at its highest level. And I think people see the scales or the really gross black brown larvae that are are dead that are just now a carcass and aren't actually um you know that that bacteria has moved on from there now um and they use that to test and they're like nope it's fine <laughs> um <Guilty> so <laughs> european foul brood i know the european foul brood test kits like take there's a learning curve and and being able to identify a larva that looks healthy but's just a little bit yellow also takes some some experience and I think like workshops on using those tools are probably something that the um, 
especially less experienced beekeepers could benefit from. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the American fowl brood um, test kits work, um, but if it's looking for spores, um, it's probably a little bit easier. I've heard that it's a little bit easier um, than than the European fowl brood ones. The kit's easier? The, the kit's just easier to, uh, the, the protocol is the same for both, but I think yeah. you can't mess it up as easy with American fowl brood. And I just want to take a second to comment to viewers and listeners. If you're off the radar and you're not reporting that you have an apiary and you don't get inspected and you may not know what you're looking at, you can get those kits and do your own testing and watch detailed videos and instructions on how to do that. And that way, when you finally do realize that you might have something, now it's time to engage that control and uh, reach out to experts at that point, because this is our problem. And I know you guys already know this, but uh, a lot of beekeepers don't want anybody in their yard and their property and their business. And yep. uh, I'm glad you're covering that. In fact, the fact that you mentioned going after not necessarily the most grotesque cell in there and doing a rope test and doing your tests on that. I'm glad you mentioned that, that a lot of people don't. So um, I'd like to encourage people to register their hives, but I know I get angry comments the minute I say that. Um, <laughs> and it's just the nature of, of beekeepers. But uh, the other thing is, Nate, were you about to say something else just into to cut you off? Uh, it, it might be more of an observation. I had heard that, um, well, to to Amy's end about the AFB test kits, because uh, I, as I understood it, they for a long time, they kind of snuck underneath the radar with their registration. And for a while this past summer, I was under um, the impression that they got pulled from the shelves because they had to reseek uh, registration under a different category. So for a while there, and I don't know where it's at now, but it, it could be difficult to test for AFB. And it's just all the more reason to have, you know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure sort of thing. Um, but that, yeah, I didn't so want to you think they may not currently be available? I, when I talked to beekeepers about this, they were still able to find them on Amazon. But um, yeah, there was there was some information that came out last year. So um, maybe I can find something and send that back to you. Um, yeah, because please do. And, and again, those watching and listening, there'll be updated information and links down in the video description. And uh, those listening on podcasts will also find that information down in the description of the podcast. So that's important to know because those test kits have a shelf life. So I don't want people they jumping do. on uh, second, you know, level shopping groups and ordering right. in these test kits because you could get one that's already expired, particularly if they're not currently being approved or there's some work to be done. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to hear you talk about that. Uh, so people just can't look at it. Are there closing thoughts? What would uh, each of you like to share as we kind of wrap things up today, thinking about the backyard beekeeping community? We'll start with you, Nate. This is your chance. <laughs> so much, uh, no, I, I've been beekeeping for 15 seasons. Um, I've been a backyard beekeeper, small-scale beekeeper, commercial beekeeper. Um, I've kept hives in Washington State, down to Florida, and in the Northeast. Um, and as far as where Dallin is with this product and this technology, I, 
I just, I don't see any reason not to try it out um, in your own operation. Uh, we've proved efficacy or we've shown efficacy and then there's no negative side effects to it. And it's the first thing to happen to come out to really be a, a prevention. Um, every, every other high product I've added in there has just been designed to either kill or strip something away from the bees. So I really like where this is, um, you know, inserted into the pipeline of, of the bees development and that sort of thing. But yeah, just a, you know, a clamshell and looked at a lot of hives and, um, I stand by it. I stand behind it. So no reason not to try it. Okay. So Amy, you voted with your career. So what are your closing thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I think it's a really exciting tool and an exciting, um, like progression of how we think about bees. Um, I've had people ask me if bees have brains. Like there are parts of our population that don't quite even grasp that bees are animals and that they are they are a living thing that need to be taken care of. And we've we manage them in these boxes and it is our responsibility to take care of them when we do that. And they are animals and they deserve to be taken care of in the same way that we think about the rest of our livestock. And we're extremely reliant on these animals. Um, and so having a tool and and a a platform for a tool to help in future ways um, is very exciting to me. Um, it's just one one step up. Um, you know, bees deserve to be taken care of. Um, so I get excited about it. Um I in um in my eight years of beekeeping, it's it's this is the most um, exciting new thing that I've gotten to see. So, and I'm really glad I get to be a part of, uh, helping beekeepers incorporate it. So. And I do, before I get to Annette, I want to, um, back up a little bit, even though they may not see classic foul brood, American or European foul brood in the brood area, um, having a vaccinated stock may improve the overall well-being and performance of those bees what is there i mean it's not just stop them from having a full-blown outbreak of american fowl brood in their brood but if they were vaccinated does it have another benefit for example if there were some sublethal or low-level fowl brood present is there evidence that the bees live longer or more prolific what do we know well, I mean, as we, we spoke before, there, there are many, many, many stressors right now on honeybees. Whether it's diseases, whether it's pesticides, whether it's it's predators, um a whole a whole slew of things that are thrown at them. And if you have a cold and all of a sudden, you know, something else comes along. You just like, you know, you just give up. You're, you're, you're less likely to be able to fend off other things when you're already sick with something. So if you take that one thing out of the equation, you're very likely better prepared to deal with other things. Honeybees, and Amy can talk much better about this than I can, have a whole slew of of tools that they can use to fend to deal with diseases on a colony level, they can increase temperature like a fever on an individual level. They are, but but if they can't 
do that because because they are weakened because of a subclinical case of American foul root. They these these mechanisms don't work as well anymore. But if you if you protect them from one, the hope is that these other these 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 natural mechanisms that the colony has and the individual bee has grooming behavior, all of those things that they can be much more efficient to protect the colony. So hopefully we will see those improvements overall. And this is not the last vaccine that we will develop. We will want we want to provide the beekeeper with the options to say, oh, in my region this year, we have European fowl root, we, we heard about it. It also, once you have preventative mechanisms and you can do something, my hope is that there will be more openness about sharing this information by saying there is a wave of European fowl root coming, let's protect our hives. And the exciting thing for me, we set out to develop a honeybee vaccine. So we can give it to the industry, that we can give it to the hobbyists, that we can give it to the people that care about these animals with their life, with their passion, and depend on them. What we didn't expect, like Amy said, a lot of people didn't don't know how important these animals are for us, for our survival globally. And all of a sudden, when the news came out, the attention that we got, that the vaccine got from popular press, from journalists that called it, it gave us an opportunity to tell the world, you need to look at these people. You need to look at the, 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 these beekeepers that, that keep us alive. You have to pay attention. And, and that to me was, was a, 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 a you know, side effect gift <laughs> to us that that it allowed us to really highlight um, how how critical these animals are and how critical the, the work is that beekeepers do. Whether you know it rains, it snows, it's you know in the summer moving around their hives um, and caring about their animals. So that's something that I'm I'm really happy that we are able to do this and able to participate in this story. I don't know, someone is sitting there looking at their computer, wondering all this time, how much does it cost? <laughs> so a 50 dose, right? If you're vaccinating your own, you get 50 is the minimum. What is that going to cost the beekeeper? Nate likes to say it depends. <laughs> you can't say it depends. We need hard numbers here. People are planning their finances. Just I think we will find a way to make it work. It's a new product. We understand that they are that it they're not just large commercials with tens of thousands of hives, right? And and whether it's a you know a queen um, bought from a from a um, queen producer or or the vaccine that they are different different scenarios or you know in some countries you'll have to get a veterinary prescription uh, where in the US we we you know were able to reason with the regulator not to put up that burden but that um those scenarios will make it will will make the price vary it is a novel product it is a limited manufacturing size to this at this time it's a novel 
process. So all of those things contribute to the price. So it's not, it's a biologic, it's a regulated product. It's not made in, in a garage, but, but by licensed manufacturers that are inspected by the USDA. So all of that contributes to the price. So it's definitely a more expensive than, you know, a, a, a vitamin or that, you know, is, is off the shelf. But we try whatever we can to work with the beekeeper. Is that correct, Nate? Yes, we, do. we try everything we can to work with the beekeepers. Um, so it's, you know, and evaluating, you know, the benefit that it's going to bring. That's a, you know, a big part of what we'll be doing this this season um, in, a, in a lot of different apiaries across the country. So. Um, but I would say if you want to get a handle on it, um, check out the website. You can see the different producers and, and what they have. And if you want to talk seriously, give me a call. <laughs> are know, they? Are they? Oh, no frivolous phone calls. Okay. No. Are, um, I want them all. Are any of those producers posting their prices for vaccinated queens yet? Mm -hmm. So what are they? A hundred bucks a queen. <laughs> well, he's going to twist our arm by going going way <laughs> down the deep end there. Well, just, I mean, I think somebody was advertising vaccinated queens for $100. Does that sound reasonable? Or is that low end? Or is that Canadian? Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds inexpensive. Um, what are they going to? Yeah. We, we, yeah, we, we, people, we don't are... influence that. And we don't, we don't say, uh, we, we were not part of that, what beekeepers do when they offer their, their queens. Um, we deal if you know obviously if there's a large volume of vaccine that they will purchase, we have more flexibility uh, on you know um, setting pricing or discounting than if it's one vial just from the handling cost that goes into it and the the shipment everything that's involved. But um, so it may may vary between a large uh, queen producer and and an individ individual or bee club. Okay. I think the B club route is a is a good one because then you can, you know. Sure. Yeah. And and they have a bunch of money they're just sitting on, wondering what to do with. It. I know. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually serious about that. There are B clubs sitting on thousands of dollars and yeah. wondering what they should do with their money. <laughs> this is not a bad way to use it, I would say. So and so, just in in closing again, I want to thank you all for your time and for sharing about this fantastic achievement. And I uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you Thanks so you. much for having yeah. us. Absolutely. And there you have it. Another episode of Interviews with Experts. Please don't forget to check the description for links and updated information. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe for more. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be.